Hey church, Pastor Cody here, and I just want to say thank you for stopping by and joining us in worship today. And while we're super excited that you're hanging out with us for this message, we also want to remind you that this is really just um, a supplemental resource that cannot and will not replace the local church. So while um, we're, we're glad that you're here, while we're glad that you're encouraged and, and, and uh, challenged and shaped by the Word of God that's being preached today, we also want to um, let you know that this is really just a substitute and in no way should forsake the uh, gathering together of the local church body. We believe that the local church is God's plan A in speaking the gospel. So please come hang out with us here at rest um, this Sunday morning with us or um, go find another Bible-believing church. Jesus is preparing the church um, that's close to you um, and he's challenged you to get plugged in there. Um, Jesus loves the church and we love Jesus and we believe that we can love Jesus better by being locally connected and serving her well. So um, just jump right in with us and we're glad you're here. Well, hey, hey, good morning. It's hot. Mike's hot. Uh, Welcome to Rest. I'm Adam. I'm one of the pastors here and I got to let you know that uh, two of your other lead team pastors have abandoned you this morning, church. Uh, I thought I was going to be the only one. Yeah, don't boom. Um, but Pastor Yohan's here. And uh, actually, they're, I love those guys, and I'm glad that they're getting uh, some rest away from rest this morning because we're actually about to start and enter into a real busy, busy kind of season uh, together as the church and uh, uh, of serving. And, um, and so if you haven't heard the good news, Rest Church Metropolis, the new LP drops October 1st. Uh, yeah, we're really excited about that. And so thank you for your support and serving and um, prayer and encouragement in that. We're, we're really excited for what the Lord's going to do. And we're trying to make Jesus more popular than Superman in Metropolis. Amen. So uh, I, I wonder this morning, have you ever had something on your mind that you just couldn't seem to get off of it? Have you ever had something on your mind you couldn't get off of it? Perhaps today, even as we uh, race toward lunchtime, you're thinking about a really memorable uh, and delicious meal maybe you had last night. Uh, and so like you're, you're thinking about what seconds are going to taste like today after church or like you can remember the taste of the cheesecake. And so you can't you just can't get it off your mind. Or perhaps um, when Monday rolls around and you go into work, maybe you just got back off of an epic vacation. And, uh, and so you're going to find yourself reimagining at the beach uh, with, in that lawn chair with the pineapple drink in your hand or on the mountain or wherever it is. You just can't seem to get it off your mind. Or maybe it's something really extra special. Maybe there's a milestone coming up or a birthday or an anniversary uh, or something that has just made a, a lasting impression on you. So you can't seem to get it out of your mind. Whatever it is, it is important to you. And, and it's all you can do to not think about it. Be about it and talk about it. It's got you in a in, in the Willie Nelson headlock because it's always on your mind, church. Have you ever had something on your mind you just couldn't get off? Well, today for us, the Apostle Paul, he has something he's been thinking about a lot in Romans too. It's something that's really close to his heart. It's something that's really close to the heart of, of God. And he's been caught up in it in the best of ways. And, and he's been talking about justification by faith alone in Christ alone. And if you haven't been with us lately, this doctrine, this is the 
conversation. This is the conversation that's been brought into the spotlight ever since we checked into Romans chapter 3 and it's continued through Romans chapter 4. In fact, in Romans 3, 21 through 31, Paul spelled out the teaching of justification by faith. And then in verses, uh, in Romans 4, he's defended this doctrine and he's actually, he's reached back into the Old Testament. He grabbed Abraham, he grabbed David to show them to us as they are prototypes and pillars of faith for justification by faith. In verses 1 through 3 of Romans 4, uh, he told us that Abraham was justified by faith. Then in verses 6 through 8, he said that David, he understood, he taught, and he believed in justification by faith. In verses 6 through 8, um, he told us that David believed in and taught and understood this. And then last week with Pastor Johan, in verses 9 through 12, Paul reminded us that justification by faith, that it's an open table in the sense that uh, everyone is in, in, in invited in in the, in the sense of that it's not just some backroom VIP party for the physical descendants of Abraham, but it's for the misfits, it's for the outcasts, it's for the outcasts like us, Rest Church. Because God has always been in the business of taking outsiders and bringing them and making them insiders. Amen. And so Paul, he, he went back to Abraham again, as Johan talked about, and, and, and he said, the, the physical outward acts that we do, that they don't have a diddly squat to, when it comes to making us right or right standing before God, that, that our rightness before God, it's unattainable through just works of the law. And so Paul, he rolled out this whole diatribe where he was asking some questions and he was answering some of those questions and he was going, man, how, how can you be right with God? Does it come from our obedience? Does it come from, from, from following the rules and, and, and law keeping? Is it something that anybody can just earn? And the answer we've seen to all of those questions, Rest Church, Bugs Bunny can help us out this morning, maybe. No, no. No, we can't be made right with God in any of those ways. Salvation only comes by grace again and grace again and grace again and grace again as this gift given to us through faith whereby we receive the righteousness of God and it doesn't come. It's not through our works. And it's like, man, Paul, he just he can't get this off of his mind. He can't stop talking about it. And it's such a good gift, church. It's such a good thing uh, for us that he can't. Because across uh, church history, when you look back, and even in our day, you still see people who stand up and, and oppose this essential truth of the gospel, that it is a gift of grace that you just cannot earn. And see, most people and in, in, in religions to a, to a degree across the planet, in some form of fashion, I think they would agree with these two basic thoughts. One, that people are really jacked up. People are really messed up. And two, that God is totally perfect. People are messed up and God is perfect. And in order to remedy that, usually two options come to the table to solve that problem. Uh, and, and option one is this. You work to receive God's righteousness. So what happens here is you buy your ticket on the eternal performance carousel and you do some things continuously perfectly so that you can be accepted before God so that at the end of your life, you know, your good deeds can outweigh your bad deeds. So you can reincarnate and, and, and pay off your cosmic karmic debt, whatever that is, or, or uh, go to purgatory in the fall for a season so that you can pay back what you owe. Or sometimes in our circle, Johan, it's the Jesus plus stuff. 
It's we need Jesus plus baptism. We need Jesus plus the Eucharist. We need Jesus plus a church name or a particular denomination or a certain sign outside. That's one option or option two, the better option. The only real option is for us to receive God's righteousness because it is a gift. We receive the righteousness because we believe that the perfect God has come down to live the the perfect life in, in obedience that we just couldn't live. And so he died a substitutionary death on your behalf to both pay for the debt that you owe in full, but also to give you his righteousness as the gift of grace that it is. Not because you could or will ever earn it, but because Jesus earned it. Theologically, this is the crux of the whole conversation when it comes to the doctrine of justification by faith. And remember, justification, we've said over and over that it's when God sees me just as if I have never sinned. And so Paul, he's already appealed to Abraham multiple times to prove this point. He's reiterated that, that, that every time in every economy of divine redemption, there is only one option that works. It is unidirectional. It is a one-way street to be made right with God. And therefore, Abraham, uh, before Abraham did anything, before any of his good works, before he brought Isaac to the altar, before he was circumcised, Abraham was counted righteous because Abraham believed God's promise. Abraham believed and he was made right. And so today, once again, the Apostle Paul, he's going to reiterate these two models of faith for us. And so if you have your Bible, go with me to uh, Romans chapter four. And we're going to get this on our mind. This is week 30 of our study together in Romans. This is Romans four, uh, 13 through 15, faith embracing the promise. And we'll read this together and then break it apart. Do you love Jesus, Rest Church? Yes. Amen. Are, are you ready to study His Word together? Amen. This is the text. It says, For this promise, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring, is that he would be heir of the world. And it did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if the, if the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. Let's pray, and then we'll kind of talk some more about this. Jesus, we love you, and we ask you, Holy Spirit, to show up in this place. God, we just we pray that today that you would come. Lord, that you would help us to humble ourselves before you. Lord, sometimes, you know, on a macro level, I think we believe that you're big enough, that you're strong enough to save people out there, to, to redeem the world of sin and pay the debt, but... On a micro level, sometimes we think you're big enough for that, but not big enough for us individually, God. And so, Lord, I pray that you would remind us to trust you this morning, to trust in the promise that you have for us. God, that that you would remind us that you've come for the one, Jesus. That you left the 99 to come for the one, and I pray for that one here today. Lord, I pray that you would help them to receive the truth of your promise, to put their trust in you, Jesus. God, so that they could be made right with you and be justified in your sight through your righteousness. And in Jesus' good name we pray. Amen. Amen. I want to I wanna give you a roadmap real quick of where we're going before we get there. Uh, there's three things in this text that we're going to kind of talk about. It's this Abe is the heir of the promise by faith. There's only one way to receive God's promise. And then lastly, that we can't earn God's love from the law. The only thing we can earn from the law is God's wrath. 
And next week, Pastor Cody's going to talk more about the motive of grace, embracing the promise, and maybe he'll talk about um, Sarah. Uh, but next week, I want to put a quick plug in for this. Uh, next week is Flood Sunday. Yeah. Um, and so, man, it, it's Baptism Sunday, and if you haven't been baptized and you're a follower of Jesus, I want to encourage you to do that. Uh, this is our last week um, together meeting in one location. We're still one church. We're going to meet in two different spots after after next week. But please be here. Move some stuff around. Get here. It's going to be a ton of fun as we celebrate as a family together. So we're excited about that. But um, anyway, the key concept we're going to kind of carry with us this morning, the thing we're going to keep on our mind is that when it comes to salvation, um, it's all about God's gracious promise. And it's not about our good performance. It's all about God's gracious promise. It's not about our good performance. So we'll jump right into this. Verse 13, it says, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring is that he would be heir of the world. It didn't come through the law, but it came through the righteousness of faith. Uh, You know, I think it's safe to assume that for the most part, most of us uh, start out believing that that people are going to do what they say that they're going to do. We start out trusting uh, promises, but then over time, this sort of reformation and realization happens that, you know, people don't really do the things that they always say that they're going to do. And, and so on one side, it's like sometimes we don't truly intend to do what we're going to say we're going to do at all. And so we make empty sort of promises. Um, and, and you know what this is. This is when you get onto your kid and you go, look, dude, if I have to tell you one more time, to pick up your room, to clean up your toys, to do whatever it is that you need to do. It's that middle name kind of moment. And then you insert the empty promise. You're like, I'm going to reverse pilgrim you. I'm going to put you on a boat with no indoor plumbing for eight months, right? You just, you make this, this false kind of empty promise. We do that sometimes. Or when it comes to promises, sometimes it's just a, a promise with vague intentions. Johan, could you go grab me a stool real quick? Appreciate it, my man. Thank you. Stool, yeah. Chair, stool, anything. Um, sometimes our promises, we make them with really vague intentions. And so we make these promises and it's like, yeah, man, I'm going to be there at 530. Um, thanks, brother. It's like, man, I'm going to be there at, at 530. Um, but actually, 555 rolls around and, and then we show up and we call that Hawaiian time in our family, uh, you know, it's like, I'll be there at 530, but then 5.55 shows up, and that's when you actually roll into this. Or sometimes, in order, uh, we do intend to keep our word, but then life just sort of happens, and what we end up doing is that, you know, a, a kid gets sick, or um, we get a flat tire, or, you know, your wife's trying to go to Bible study Wednesday night, and uh, your kitchen sink, one of the tubes explode on it and it's Niagara Falls in your kitchen. That happened to me this week. And so sometimes life just shows up and so we can't keep our promises that we intend to keep. But unlike us, our God does and can and always every time he keeps his promise. Your God is a promise keeper, not a promise breaker. In fact, Psalm uh, 71, 22 tells us you are faithful to your promises, O God. You are faithful. Your God is a promise keeper, not a promise breaker. And so I want to encourage you right here, right off the bat, that whatever it is that you're struggling with, when it comes to finding balance, whether it's in your emotions or identity or circumstances, in faith, you can look to the promises of God that he's written to us in the scriptures. Look to the one who remains 
faithful. And then here's the key part of this. After you look to his promises, you actually live like they're true. You live like you actually believe them to be true because they are. And God always keeps his word. And even when we don't see it, he's still working. Amen, church. Amen. So what Paul's doing in our text today is that he's drawing our attention. He's drawing our attention onto some promises that God has made. And so I want to draw your attention to look at verse 13. It says this to Abraham and his offspring. And then what is the promise exactly? Well, it tells us that he would be heir of the world. Now, this promise given is really a collection of promises that we've talked about. We've seen shown up with Abraham from God. And, and I'll remind you quickly of a few of these. Uh, we see this in Genesis 17. We see it in Genesis 22. But we'll look at Genesis 15 where God says this to Abraham. Then the Lord uh, took Abraham outside and, and he said to Abraham, he said, look up at the sky. If you can count the stars, that's how many descendants you're going to have. That's the promise that God makes to Abraham. And, and so in Romans 4, 3, he says, obey this. Um, he doesn't say obey this law and ble- I'll bless you forever. And he said, instead he says, believe this and I will bless you forever. And Abraham believed God, Genesis 15, and he was made righteous through the promise who is Christ. Now this promise, it comes without any conditions. It comes without any requirements attached to it. And I tell you that because you and I, we serve a no strings attached kind of God when it comes to him upholding his side of the bargain. He always remains faithful, even when you and I are faithless. Now, now this is a really specific sort of promise that's given and it's come without any conditions to it. And and, and it's a specific promise from a specific story. It's got specific actions who is the object of our faith, Jesus. But the text also shows us, it tells you and me who this promise is for. And it talks about the benefits of the promise package. So look at it again. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring is that he would be heir of the world. Look at that text. Church, who were the recipients of the promise? Abraham and his kids, right? Abraham and his offspring. And so the covenant promises given to Abraham weren't just for Abe. And they weren't just for the, 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 the promise. It wasn't just for his immediate family. And the promise wasn't just for the Old Testament uh, saints. So the promise was for Abe and his offspring being a, a multitude of nations upon nations, uh, eternally speaking, those who are in Christ. And so if you share the faith of Abraham, he's talking about you too. This means it's for me. This means the promises are for you. If your faith is in Christ, it means that you are a co-heir with Christ. An heir of the world, it says. But, but, but what does that even mean? What does it mean to be an heir of the world? Where there's, there's a couple of things that are revealed to us here that I want to just point out to you and, and what that means of being an heir of the world. Number one is this. An heir means that all families, all the God's families would be blessed through this promise that came. All the families of God would be blessed. And to take you back to Genesis 12 on this, 2 through 3, says this, and I will make you a great nation. Listen to the blessing. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And you all families of the earth shall be blessed. That's a lot of blessing, church. That's a lot of blessing. 
And this blessing, it has to do with this global, eternal reach of the promise that God has given Abraham. And it was going to be a lot of people, right? The text said it's like the stars in the sky. It's like the, like the dust on the ground. All of God's family would be blessed through Abraham. And so remember when the Old Testament prophets, they were looking forward to a day when all of the nations would be gathered together to worship, to come to Zion and worship God. Well, Paul's reminding us that in the gospel, this promise is being fulfilled. And he's reminding us of the promise that God will be faithful in bringing all of the nations to worship him. That's one thing in the promise. A second thing we see in the promise is some land acquisition. It's some land acquisition. This promise has to do with some land. See, God had promised the, 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 the land that was Canaan to him, this modern day Israel. And so... Uh, Canaan, it was really a type of new creation, new land that would come later on. And oftentimes what we'll see in biblical prophecy when we look at it is that there's an escalation built into it so that sometimes what's guaranteed to be given up front, it actually is greater than what's guaranteed or appears to be guaranteed in the beginning. And I love this about God, that God always, His abundance always seems to exceed our expectations. Now, in the Genesis count, account, uh, chapters 12 and 13 of Genesis, in Canaan, say Canaan. In Canaan, it, it included the north, the south, the east, and the west of where Abraham was. But here, Paul says that the promise, it, it involved being an heir of the world. So it makes us wonder, how does this, how does this promise of land transition into this promise as an heir of the the world. And I think the third part of this really helps us understand the first two. And it's this. Lastly, and perhaps most importantly, in the benefits package of the promise comes Jesus the Messiah. Comes Jesus the Messiah, who is, a, this is Abraham's ultimate offspring that comes. And he is the basis and the culmination of the promises. And so, Remember, this, this, this promise package, it had, it had blessing included in it, and it also had land acquisition included in it. And here's how that happens through Christ. In, in Christ, you're blessed. Paul says, if you're in Christ, that's how, that's how you're blessed. He also says, this is how believers will inherit the land. In Christ. Matthew 5, 5, the meek will inherit the earth. 1 Corinthians 3.21, so let no, win, no man boast, for all things are yours. Christ Jesus will rule over this world, over the future, and that's a promise. That's something that you and I can take to the bank, that He will reign, and we will reign as co-heirs with Christ. And look, we can, we can, we can split hairs on these promises, and no doubt, like, there's still a war going on over this land today, right? Right, so we can, we can split hairs about this promise, but one thing we can all agree on is that the promise is surely messianic. It's surely pointing us to Jesus at a bare minimum. So how do we receive the promise, though? What are the means of the promise? What are the means of the promise of faith? Well, notice here, look at the text. Paul has this really sharp knot built into verse 13. Do you see the knot? Say knot. So it's an emphatic negative. It's, it's a contrast here. He says, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world didn't come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. How did God's promise come to Abraham and his offspring? Well, we know it didn't come through the law. Not through the law. 
but through the righteousness that comes by faith. And this is it, church. This, this is it. It's about God's gracious promise and not our good performance. Every time. It's about His promise, not our, not our performance. Now remember, Paul here, he's talking to a people that have tremendous, tremendous respect for the law. They love the law. And from their past experiences, the Old Testament prophets had warned them. They said, hey, if you keep walking in disobedience, here's what's going to happen. You're going to be exiled. And they were exiled for like 70 years. And so what, what was branded on their mind was this. We're not going to make that same mistake again. Right? It's the, it's the principle of, you know, if you grab an electric fence one time, that's usually enough times, right? And so they said, above everything else, we are not going to make this mistake again. And, and so as a result, they became really, really, really devoted to the law. And what happened, unfortunately, is that their love of the law got in the way of their love for God. And it got warped and it got misshapen and became about the, the letter and, and not the spirit. But notice the means on the receipt that Paul says, he said, notice these words, not through the law, but righteousness, but through the righteousness of faith. It was faith, not obedience. You and I, we are saved by faith. But faith isn't the grounds of our salvation. It's the instrument. It's the conduit. Christ is the ground. Faith is how we how we receive it. Faith doesn't save. It's the righteousness of Christ that that saves. But the way that you receive the promise and the way that you become an heir is through faith. Listen to me. Nobody's internal inheritance has ever hung on the law of Moses. But everyone's eternal inheritance hangs on the promises that were given to Abraham. Now, what's so crazy to me in this is like, man, what can I, what can I ever do to bring to the table? <laughs> what, can I ever, what can I ever really do to earn, earn to be right with God, to, to be an heir of God, when the reality is the only true heir of God, the only one that deserves it, is the, the Son of God. He's the, he's the one who is the heir. The Son alone is worthy to inherit the kingdom that His Father has promised, but through this wonderful gift of faith that comes with righteousness, that is by faith, those who are in Christ, we are adopted into God's family and we become His heirs. Do you know that you're a co-heir of Abraham and so that means you're a co-heir with Christ? Man, the other day I was picking up my four-year-old Jordy from uh, daycare, and he had this um, this crown on his head. You can pull that picture up, and he was so proud. So I took a photo of him, and uh, just like a big brother does when he gets in the car, Josh Jackson's like Jackson's his older brother, and he's like, "Why you got that crown on, bro?" You know. <laughs> and so, um, don't pick this story apart too bad. But uh, I-, I told him, I said, "Well, Jackson, you know if." If Christ is the king, right, and Jesus is our big brother and we're his brothers and sisters and God the Father is the owner of the kingdom, what, is that, what does that make us? We're sons of God, right? You're, you may be a daughter of God. You're a daughter of the kingdom. You're a son of the kingdom. And I saw this light bulb kind of go off with Jackson. He was like, oh, yeah. And then he wanted a crown too. Um, <laughs> but 
I, I share that just because I want to remind you that if you believe that to be true about God, that He is the King of Kings, um, and you're a son or daughter, you're not a slave anymore. But you're part of the royal family. You're part of a priesthood of believers. And I'm not talking about when I say part of the kingdom, I'm talking about ballroom dances and dresses. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about a kingdom spirit of generosity. I'm talking about a kingdom kind of humility. Um, a kingdom generosity that you've been bought and grafted into as an heir of Christ. We receive this through faith. And later on, Paul's going to talk more about what this means to be a co-heir of Christ. And, and we'll get to that later. But this is really one of the first times he introduces this concept. And he says that this inheritance doesn't come through the law, but we receive it through faith. All of this pointing to salvation uh, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's how you and I are made right with God. Next, Paul, he reiterates for us this one-way road trip in receiving God's promise. And, and he says... There's only one way for you to receive God's promise. And he says this in verse 14, for if the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. <laughs> I think Paul, you can leave that verse up for a second. I think Paul partly writes this and, and brings us this juxtaposition in here to shock the Jews out of the slumber that they're in. Because he, he juxtaposes obedience and law, look at it, with promise and faith. And what he's saying is he's going, you can't have it both ways. You can't have it both ways. Because that phrase, adherence of those who are of the law, it's referring to those who base their, their standing with God on performing the Mosaic law. But, listen to this, if people could, could inherit their blessing by keeping the law, it means that your faith becomes void. It becomes worthless. And so the idea here is that grace and faith and promise, they're interlocking concepts, but so are law and transgression and wrath. And they belong to a whole nother system. And what Paul's getting at is that, that something can be given to you and me either by law or by promise. God's the author of both, right? He's the author of both, but they cannot both be in operation together. In Galatians, Paul talks about this more. He says that inheritance can't depend on the law. He said then it no longer depends on the promise. So law and promise, they, they belong to two different categories of thought for Paul that are incompatible. And, and you know this, law language, it's the you shall. And so you shall, and it demands our obedience. But promise language is when God goes, I will. And this demands our Faith. So there's not two ways, say two, there's not two ways to receive this promise. And so if we could get what God has to offer by just checking some boxes, going to church, filling out some forms, that eliminates the trust part completely. And all it becomes at that point is a business deal. And, and Paul's saying this doesn't make God more loving if it's like this. This makes God less loving. If it's like this, because he talked about this in Romans 4, 4, Carl, not now to the one who works his wages, what he is owed is not a gift. That's what's due to him. But and if this is one big business deal, Paul's saying this doesn't make God more loving. It makes him way less loving. So if you and I, if we think we can get there by just being good enough, it contradicts the whole point of the promise that's given in the first place. And it does this in at least two ways. Number one is this. If you say the promise received comes from being good, 
No one ever is going to be saved. Because you can't do it. And the only person in the good category is one person, and that's Jesus. He's the only one that could meet that standard of holiness. If we can receive the kingdom of God by our works, it empties the promises and the significance of faith altogether. And the language Paul uses there is void. That means it's worthless. That means it's been destroyed. That means it's made ineffective altogether. And the second way this contradicts the promise of God is this. If you suggest, if you were to suggest that, that, that God only loves those who can earn his love, only those who do enough can please him, that God uh, loves those who first loved him, that completely, completely contradicts and inverses the scripture. Because we know in 1 John 4, it, it tells us, that, that we love because he first loved us. God made the first move. He made the first move. And if we condition our love or, or God's love by our own actions, what we're saying really is that, hey, we're more loving than God is. Because if you believe that salvation is based has anything to do with your good performance, what you're saying is that people can save themselves and God has to wait until you're good enough before He can offer you promise and blessing. That's not what the Bible teaches, though. It says Christ died for us while we were yet sinners. He died for the ungodly. Church, God, God didn't save us because we were good enough or we were so lovable that He just couldn't help Himself. No, 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 no. That, that's not what happened. He reached out to save us, not because we are good, but because He is good. And so he sent his son, Jesus, the Messiah of the promise to die in your place, to die in my place. And that's a far more loving God than one who only accepts those who, who can be good enough and rejects those who don't measure up. You and I, what we need is we need Jesus's obedience on our behalf. And by faith, we can receive it. It's not it's not about good performance. It's about God's gracious promise. Lastly, wrapping this up, Paul says in verse 15, he says, well, the law, it can't make you right because <laughs> you could never do it. You could never you could never complete it. But also the reason it can't save you is this, because the law brings wrath. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. And it's like, man, why? why but why does Paul get to such a grim conclusion about people that think that justification can come through works rather than faith. And he answers it right there for us. He says, look, he's just because the law brings wrath. You and I, we can't earn God's love from the law. The only thing we can earn from the law is God's wrath. The law brings wrath. Because the law can't bring love. The only thing the law can bring, it can produce the threats of the wrath that is coming on those who reject Christ. Now, how does this actually happen? How, do, how does the law bring wrath? That's kind of confusing. Well, it brings wrath by exposing our sinfulness. The law exposes us because if you don't maintain it perfectly and continuously, then you're under the law and you're condemned to death because the wages of sin is death. And so... Apart from grace, the law only brings condemnation to us and it demonstrates to us that we have all violated God's standard. 
We've all violated the standard. The law doesn't affect our salvation or justification or forgiveness. What it affects is the wrath of God. So if we're looking for confidence in the law or in, in what we do, more specifically through our good works of the law, it can only be, bring wrath because that's what it's been built for. That's what it's been built for. Now, Paul, he compliments this saying in the second end of this verse, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. So does this mean that there was, uh, wasn't any sin before the law was written down? No. No, he, he, he doesn't say where there's no law, there's no sin. <laughs> there was a lot of sin between Genesis 1 and Exodus 3.20. We still had the moral law of God, even though the Mosaic law hadn't been written down yet. We see this. We know there was sin because there was death all over the early parts of the Bible and sin brings death. So yes, we know that there was sin, but there was trespassing, but there wasn't transgressing yet. And so imagine this with me for a second. You're out driving today on the road. Can you pull that picture up? Maybe. There it is. You're out driving today. Let's imagine you're driving down this road um, today after church. I don't know if that's in Colorado or Arizona or where that is. Maybe you caught a flight there and are driving. Maybe that was a bad picture. But you're driving down this road um, and, and you notice that there's no, no speed limit sign on this road. And there's no law that's posted on that, that says, hey, you should drive this fast or you should, you should drive this slow on this particular, particular stretch. Now, in this example, where there's no law, there's no transgression. Trespassing in the Scripture is when we unknowingly wander over a boundary line. Transgression, on the other hand, is when we knowingly step over the boundary line. So since there's no speed limit here, you can't be considered a transgressor by driving whatever speed you want. You're not violating the written rules of the road because there are no rules written there. But... Let's imagine you're driving down this same road a different day. And you're like Dukes of Hazard, And your britches are on fire. Um, Matt, that's the, that's the Southern Greek for saying way too fast, by the way. Uh, and you're driving down this road and you see this sign that pops up on the road. And it says, slow down. Speed limit this. It's 25 miles per hour. But you decide to continue to go 95 miles per hour and continue on your merry way. Because nobody's around. Now, all of a sudden, you are, you're breaking the law because you're transgressing it. There's an established speed limit. You know of this, and you're knowingly stepping over this boundary line. And as a result of breaking this law, what is it that we deserve, church? Woo, 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 right? We deserve the guilt and the shame of the blue lights. We are a fine or Jail time or whatever breaking that particular law calls for. We deserve this. Paul's telling us that before the law, there might have been some general, some vague uneasiness about those who were doing wrong, even if they weren't sure if it was right or wrong. But when the law came, it, signed, it served as a signpost and a showstopper to call out the specific sin in which we were transgressing and it makes it really clear. So the law, it comes along so that all of sin can be seen in its full sinfulness. And what the law does for us is it serves as a fence that gives distinct boundaries or limits 
that we're not to cross over. It serves as a, a, a motion light that when we cross over that boundary, the, the light is shine in and exposes us. It serves as a, a Nest Cam video. And it, it's irrefutable evidence that can be replayed in the grand court of God one day. And then lastly, it serves as a hammer. And it's a verdict convicting us and condemning us and calling for wrath. And what I want you to see about the law is that it's not mean. It's not unjust. The law just calls it like it is. It's a mirror. It shows us exactly who we are. And so the only way Paul says to avoid breaking the law of God is to have no law in the first place. Yet what we've done as sinners is we've all we've all ignored the signpost of God. We've all sped up. We've all disregarded and transgressed God's law. And so the question isn't really, are we rebellious? The question is, where is it that you're rebellious at? Whether it's financially or emotionally or, or physically or spiritually, whatever it is, we are rebellious and it's just in different, different places. And, and because of this, we deserve the wrath of God because the law says so. The law was given to increase the awareness that lost people are lost. You're meant to look at the law and go, I could never measure up to this. And Paul goes, exactly. Exactly. The big issue on this is when, not if, but when we break the law of God and something we do, something we've done, something we continue to do, the problem, the problem isn't that you and I just violated some moral abstract piece of legislation. No, no, no. We violated the person who owns it. We've done harm to Christ because it's His. We're injuring Him. And that's why sin is so egregious in God's sight. If we seek to find salvation through the law, through good performance, all it's going to do is expose us to the wrath. So how do we move from unrighteousness to righteousness, church? How, how do we move? How do we become an heir of this promise of God? Well, I think Paul might hope you have something on your mind as I do this morning. And I hope you're thinking about justification by faith. That's the only way. That's the only way. It's when God, He trades your and my rebellion for His righteousness. As we place our trust in Jesus, Jesus in turn places His righteousness in you and me. And it's demonstrated in a verse you're probably really familiar with. In John, it says, But for God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. Look at that. But for God so loved the world and He gave His Son. And that Son of the promise there in that text, He came into this world and he lived perfectly, he perfectly obeyed the law so that all who might trust him could receive his righteousness through faith and be saved by God. Not because of something you've done, not because of something you've earned, but because of something Jesus has earned. This is what Paul means when he says we're saved, we're justified by faith and not obedience. We're saved by God and not the law, and the promise is Christ. And what's so amazing about this is that you know that God would never reject His Son. 
And so if you've received the righteousness of Christ, it means that God would never reject you either. So here's what happens. We either have faith in ourselves or we have faith in Jesus. We either trust in the works that we do or we trust in the works that God has done through Christ on the cross and we either wrongly try to earn right standing before God by our own performance or we rightly receive right standing with God by faith in Jesus' perfection that, that He is credited to the account those whose faith rests in Him alone. And my question for you is, have you received this promise today? Have you received the promise today? It's about God's gracious promise and not our good performance. On the Titanic, uh, one of the passengers was a pastor from Scotland. And his name was John Harper. We'll pull a picture of him up in a second. And Harper, he had spent uh, three months ministering at Moody Church in Chicago. And he hadn't been back in Britain for a, a long time whenever he was asked to return. So what he did is he, he quickly made arrangements for himself and his six-year-old daughter, Nana, uh, to return back via the Titanic. And on April 14, 1912, the Titanic, as you know, it struck an iceberg. And Harper is said to have in that moment wrapped up his six-year-old daughter in a blanket. And he told her that, that he would see her again one day. And he put her on a lifeboat and she floated away. And she did actually survive. But one survivor distinctly remembered hearing Harper uh, repeatedly shout out what was on his mind. And he said this, women and children and the unsaved, get into the lifeboats. See, he knew that believers were ready to die to meet God. But he knew that, that unbelievers, that they weren't ready to meet God. And so what Harper did is he ran along the decks pleading with people to turn to Christ. And he even called on the Titanic's orchestra at one point and they played a hymn and he had people gathered around him on the deck and they were singing together and he, and he dropped to his knees and knelt down with this just holy joy in his face and he raised his arms in prayer. And as the ship began to sink, Harper dove off into the icy waters and he swam frantically all around urging people to turn to the Lord Jesus and be saved. And John Harper then sank into the depths and he passed out of this life into the Lord's presence and he was 39 years old. Now what's so amazing about this story is that four years later, there was a young Scotsman named Agilla Webb and he stood up in this meeting in Hamilton, Canada and he gave this following testimony. I'm just going to read to you what he said. He said, I'm a survivor of the Titanic. When I was drifting alone on a spar that awful night, the tide brought Mr. John Harper also on a piece of the wreck near me. Man, he said, are you saved? No, I said, I am not. He replied, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. The waves bore him away, but strange to say, brought him back a little later. And he asked again, are you saved now? No, I said, I can honestly say that I am. And he said again to me, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. And shortly after he went down and there alone in the night and with two miles of water under me, 
I finally believe I am John Harper's last convert. As we bow our heads this morning, just consider what the Lord Jesus might have said to you through His Word today and how the Holy Spirit is speaking to you right now. You know, Hebrews 11, it, it reminds us that faith is being sure of what we hope for, that it's a, a certainty of, of things that we can't see. And sometimes I think, church, we, we believe that faith is just a religious word. But it's not because people have faith in someone or something all the time. In the secular world, you know, if you, if you get sick and you go to the doctor, you have faith in that doctor to correctly diagnose you. You have faith in the pharmaceutical company to write, give the right stuff. You have faith in the pharmacy to put the right prescription in the bottle. It's an act of faith. If you get on an airplane, you're putting your, you're putting your faith in, or trust in the engineer that he knew how to make one. You're putting your, your trust in the mechanic that he certified it. You're putting your trust in the pilot that he's had the right training and can get you to where it is that you need to be. It's an act of faith. And so faith isn't this foreign concept to us. We understand exactly what it means to, to have faith, to trust. And, and so the question for you this morning is this, is God worthy of your faith? Is he faithful? Is God worthy of your trust? Is he trustworthy? You can't prepare, you know, for an unknown future, but you can follow a God who has a future that's been prepared for you. And in front of every person this morning stands one of two futures. One is that you will have a future that uh, inherits the world as a co-heir of Christ. And the other future is that you will inherit the wrath of God. And the, the defining piece in this is all about the righteousness of God. Is it, has the righteousness of God been credited to your account? Or does it stand as a witness against you? The most important thing about you is what you think about Jesus. The most important thing, a decision you will ever make is whether you decide to belong and believe in Jesus Christ. Would you receive His gift, His, His promise that comes by faith to be made righteous as He is righteous? And so if you're here this morning and you don't know the Lord Jesus like you know about him but if you're honest man that law is heavy and it's hanging like a like a weight around your neck because it's exposing you don't be afraid my friend that's what it's supposed to do it's supposed to show you that you can never measure up that we can only be made right by because Jesus has measured up for us and so I ask this morning, you see, as, as, as the Father elects and, and the Son atones and the Holy Spirit calls you, 
This morning, would you receive the righteousness of Jesus to forgive you of your sin, to be made right in the sight of God? Christians are praying for you in this room right now, man. Would you receive the promise of faith, the righteousness of Christ? If you want to do that while heads are bowed and eyes are closed, I'm just going to ask you to lift up your hand in just a second. I'm going to count to three. And and if you want to follow Christ for the first time, to receive His righteousness, I think when we respond outwardly, physically, it kind of just solidifies it internally. So if that's you this morning, say, I want to receive Jesus. I want to be forgiven of my sin. I'm going to count to three. And you just lift your hand in the air. Just make sure that I see you. One, God loves you. Two, you'll never be the same. Three, just lift your hand and put it right back down. Make sure that I see you. Amen. Amen. Is there anybody else who says, I want to receive the, the, the righteousness of God? Man, I'm telling you, it'll, it'll change everything about you. It'll change, it'll change your life forever. If you want to receive Jesus, just lift your hand in the air. Put it right back down. I was going to say something to you believers about the promises of God and I think the Holy Spirit has just been telling me something else this morning so you can look up here um, let's celebrate salvation first of all what's the verse Johan and my grace is sufficient for you my power is made perfect in your weakness right Man, I'm not, I'm not, I'm usually not a real emotional guy. And um, probably wondering why I'm sitting in a stool this morning. And honestly, I was too. Um, I, just, I came up here and I just couldn't stand up. Um, and I, I didn't know what was going on. And I think through that, the Holy Spirit's been speaking to me that, that verse like, doesn't, it, it's not about you. It's not whether you stand up or sit down. My, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. And so believers, maybe, maybe that's what God the Holy Spirit might want to say to you this morning. Man, whatever you got going on, whatever weakness you might have, be reminded of the promise of Christ that lives inside of you, the Holy Spirit that lives inside of you. That He is still just as powerful raising Christ from the dead as He is today. And that yes, you are weak. And yes, you don't measure up. But Jesus in you always does every time. You know, God's promises, man, they're, they're predictable and they're, they're reliable. They don't always play out exactly how we think they're going to play out. But if He says that it's going to happen, it will happen. And I pray that you would trust that this morning. And on, and on that, 
on that promise. Church, I want you to, I want you to think back in your own life, you believers this morning. Think back to a moment when you felt cornered and where God showed up and just made a way. Look at his track record in your life and be reminded of that. And let's give him praise this morning. Church, let's stand together. Yeah, let's celebrate that. Let's stand together and just respond to what Jesus might say to you.